Hi, my name is Shlomi Ron. I'm the CEO at the Visual Storytelling Institute. And welcome for another episode of Visual Storytelling Today podcast, where I interview every month an expert in visual storytelling. And for this episode, I decided to really address a very pressing question I'm getting from a lot of my clients and some of the students that I teach at school. Keep asking, you know, we understand with video, we can tell a very robust story, but how can we tell a great story using an image or a photo? Obviously, the, the question is quite uh, uh, important these days, you know, with Instagram and other uh, social networks. And when you think about it, uh, a video has, uh, it's a series of sequence of images, so you can definitely build a, a nice story this way, but how can you compress it into a single photo? So that's the topic for today. And for this uh, exciting uh, topic, I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Jaime Permuth. And he is a really uh, award-winning photographer that, uh, let me read a little bit about him. Uh, he has a fascinating background. He's, uh, he's based in New York and Jaime is known for his long form documentary work in his photographs have been shown nationally and internationally, including New York City venues such as uh, the Museum of Modern Art, uh, the Queen's uh, Museum of Art, the Bronx Museum of the Arts, uh, the Museum of the City of New York, the Jewish Museum, and El Museo del Barrio, among others. Uh, he's also a faculty member at the School of Visual Arts, uh, where he teaches uh, the Master in Digital Photography, and also uh, at the New, New Film Academy's uh, Conservatory Program in Photography. Wow, welcome to the show, Jaime. <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> It's great to be here. Awesome. Wonderful. So before we get uh, deeper into uh, the exciting world of uh, narrative uh, photography, uh, maybe you can give us a little bit uh, about your background, how you started your journey. What was your, your backstory? Well, I, I think all photographers bring different things to their, um, to their practice. And I think that nothing you experience in life is ever lost. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I grew up in Guatemala and then I studied um, at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I studied literature and I studied psychology. I think both, both of those tools are important to me as a photographer. Uh -huh. Perhaps it'll surprise you to hear that literature is the more important tool for me. Oh, wow. Um, and in regards to what you started uh, describing as a topic of our conversation, right? Yep. Um, how do you tell documentary style stories like my own, mm -hmm. non-fictional stories? Well, for me, coming from literature, part of the answer is to try to harness the tools of fiction. Mm. So that I refer to novels, I refer to short stories, uh -huh. um, I refer to cinema, for the kind of devices that make a story more powerful. And I think um, the question you started raising about how do you communicate in still photographs right. uh, as opposed to video has two aspects. One aspect is understanding better um, the limits of the, still, of the still photograph and its power. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other part of that answer is when you go not to a single image, but to a sequenced mm. number of images, 
Right. How do you build meaning across images? There's, so yep. there's two parts to that question. Absolutely. Yeah, because my assumption, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, unlike video, where we kind of serve uh, the audience uh, with the plot or the storyline of you know moving from setting conflict to resolution, for example, you know the, the classic three-act story structure, in image, it, it's more work on the viewer because he needs to complete the story in his mind, I think. So it's, you kind of plug, stage the image in a way that the viewer needs to complete the story in their head and kind of find the different components that you kind of plugged in the image so the audience can actually extract meanings from those. Am I right? I think you're absolutely right. That's absolutely correct. And the, the classic example of that is you can sit in a classroom, which you often do yep. yourself, and you can talk about a single photograph and ask people in the room to, to tell you what it's about right. in their own view. Yeah. You know, why it moves them mm -hmm. or what aspect of the photograph fascinates them. And right. you'll get different answers. Exactly. If you got the same answer, then there would be no additional work required from the viewer. But since right. photographs are more ambiguous and mm -hmm. their narrative is more open-ended, yeah. Um, the viewer has to come to the table, has to meet the photographer halfway. And right. So part of appreciating photographs and getting the most out of them is to do exactly what you said. Hmm. You know, use your imagination. Question them. Right. Notice things. Um, one of the exercises that I, that I like to do with my students is simply mm -hmm. naming right. what's in the photograph. All the things that they see. Mm -hmm. And that already takes us kind of far into the forest because we are trained to look at things so quickly in our society when yep. we, we are good at it. I mean, in a fraction of a second, we, you know, we can get the gist of what the image is trying right. to tell us. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't take enough time to really look at the details and we're missing some of the information. Absolutely. It's interesting uh, the way you, you phrased it uh, about naming the object in the image, because the way, the way I address it uh, in, in my uh, courses is that uh, I kind of use the, you know, the science of semiotics, where basically every object in the world, I guess in this context, those components that you ask your students to name, these are all had carry objective meanings. Basically, anyone that you show this image to, he's going to point to the same objects and name them the same way. This is a cat, this is a chair. But the interesting level is what is the subjective meaning mm -hmm. of those objects? And that's where you get the variance in answers. Because for someone that uh, had a hate relationship with cats, it's going to be completely different from a person that had a pet for the past 10 years, for example. So, do you find that... Uh, or, the or the opposite could be true, right? Someone yeah. who's very attached to their dog yeah. might find the photograph absolutely wonderful. And somebody who exactly. has never met that dog... Exactly. Uh, so, how can you actually... Anything. So, how can you actually create a, a story in your head, again, which you bring out, you know, the objective and subjective in your, way, in, in your mind, but then you kind of you know, offer it to your audience, how can you design it in a way that, uh, or staging the, the component in the right place 
so they can elicit the story that you want to tell, also kind of pushing the subjective meanings. Absolutely. Um, I mean, many people mistakenly think that the medium of a photographer is the camera. Mm -hmm. The medium is light, and the medium is not only light, but light and shadow. Mm. That's the yin and yang of photography. And so light is what you are illuminating and what you're putting forward more strongly. Shadow is what you're withholding, mm-hmm. right? So every story, unless it's going to fall flat and it's going to be um, without dimension, mm-hmm. is equally concerned with, on the one hand, what it is revealing, and on the other hand, what is withholding. Right. Now, I will say that the better photographers, the better artists, one way to measure their mastery over their craft uh-huh. is that um, your eye goes where they intended it to go in the frame. So if you're a good photographer, Mm -hmm. you compose a picture in such a way that you lead your audience into it so that it's not random. Mm -hmm. They approach the photograph in a certain way because you created structures within the photograph that have to do with lighting, that have to do with composition, that have to do with um, choice of lens and vantage point. Uh In other words, where are you in relation to your subject as a photographer? Where are you focused? How far away or how close are you? How much of a context are you giving people? Or, you know, those are all creative decisions Mm -hmm. that photographers must make each and every time they construct an image. Right. And I, I think that's another um, point at wh- where, let's say, the general mm-hmm. um, impression of people who are laymen yep. and the professional knowledge of photographers really differs mm-hmm. in the sense that people talk about capture. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous to talk about capture. It's a horrible word to use in terms of photography because it's right. completely untrue. You're not capturing, you are constructing the image. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a very big difference there. So in terms of your artistic intention as a photographer, mm-hmm. that's how you guide your audience to the, to the kind of meaning that you're interested mm-hmm. in exploring. I see, I see. Mm-hmm. And, and when we did a kind of a, a conversation a couple of weeks ago, we also, if you remember, we talked about uh, visual grammar. That's a, a huge topic in... A, when you try to put together a story. So there's two aspects for it. One, I would say, what is the visual grammar? Or in other words, what are the key components that you need to include in a photo uh, to constitute you know, a story? And the other part, we can talk afterwards, you know, what would drive engagement <laughs> or response to that uh, photo, which is that's something that I'm sure very interesting to a lot of folks. But let's focus mm-hmm. first on the first part, you know, how can you, what are the, you know, plug and play or key components putting together a simple story right. in one photo? So, um, you know, when I, when I think of photographs, mm-hmm. um, there's a few elements that I, that I find essential. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, light and shadow being number one. Right. Um, geometries mm-hmm. are very important and uh, geometrical shapes uh-huh. in particular, or leading lines, 
um, if you think of the roundness of a pregnant woman and how that makes you feel psychologically, right. that's very different than, let's say, the jagged edges and rusty metal that you'll find in the junkyard. Right. Um, so that the actual shapes mm -hmm. that you see in the frame have uh, translate psychologically, translate emotionally. Yep. Um, I will talk about composition, mm -hmm. how you arrange the information, what's in the foreground, what's in the background, what's in the middle ground. And I will talk about another element, which is not strictly composition, but it's very important to think about is the power of the frame that contains the photograph. What happens when you place information closer to the edges of a frame? Mm. How does that change perception? The rule of um, thirds, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the rule of thirds is definitely composition. It's composition 101 and it's, uh, it's mm -hmm. effective. Yep. Um, like I said, vantage point mm -hmm. is, is a big part of this story. Really, it's in a nutshell, a photographer moves mm -hmm. and clicks at a certain point. So you place yourself in relation to a subject and then you wait for the right moment to take that picture. And that's half the story already. And, um, and you find yourself, true. quick question yeah. though, just as you said, it's gonna trigger the, another question. You know, when you, if you try to uh, parallel this to uh, in, like a movie or video, when they have, you have like the hero shot and then you have some B-roll where, you know, for some reason the camera is focusing on some minute detail uh, in the frame. So mm -hmm. do, do you find yourself also uh, using that analogy uh, in a photo? So you have maybe a, a character that is front and center or very large. And then you have, you kind of place uh, meaningful details, you know, in the vicinity of that frame, just to kind of tell a more, uh, you know, detail rich uh, story. So it's not just, uh, you know. Why don't we look at a photograph yeah, to make it less abstract? Let's um, that. There's that famous photograph by Cartier-Bresson of the Garza Lazar. Okay. It's, um, it's one of the iconic um, photographs in the history of photography, right? And uh, this is a photograph taken by Cartier-Bresson, um, French photographer, in the 1930s, I believe. Hold, hold on a second. Let and me just uh, make sure I open the right one. This is the right one, yes. Oh, it was the right one? Yes. Okay. That is the right image. Got it. It's a complex photograph, right? Okay. And if we were following the method that I outlined before, I would suggest to you that some of the things that are visible are a man in silhouette who is jumping. Yep. And he is reaching full stride. His reflection in the water is another element. Uh -huh. There's a man in the background, all the way in the background, and his reflection in the water. There's a skyline of mm -hmm. rooftops and there's a clock tower. Yep. What looks like a chimney or a clock tower. I know for a fact that it's a clock tower. Right. And if you go to Paris, that clock tower is still visible. Uh -huh. And it, it belongs to the Gare Saint-Lazare, to one of the train stations in Paris. And if you wanted to place yourself um, almost a century later in the exact same spot where Cartier-Bresson stood, you could potentially do it um, by aligning yourself with that clock tower and having the right lens on your camera, which 
may or may not be a 50, but I would guess a 50, which was one of Cartier-Bresson's favorite lenses. What are other things we see in this frame? Well, there's a wheelbarrow that is a little bit hard to see, but you see it more clearly in its reflection in the water. And there's a pile of rocks yep. next to it. Yep. And you could argue that possibly it's a construction zone. Uh -huh. Maybe it's a factory, it's a maybe. Zone. I'm sorry? Maybe a factory, you know, this is like, uh, I see the, the, you know, the high fence, maybe it's some sort of a factory, I don't know. <laughs> well, it, it, it's probably, I would imagine the limit of the train station. Mm. So that they block off the foot traffic on one side and you have to go around to the main entrance. Right. Uh, that would be my guess. Um, mm. We see the, the water on the ground. Mm -hmm. Maybe the space is flooded, maybe it's rainwater accumulating. Um, but at any rate, there's this, the man jumping. Mm -hmm. And one of the magical things about this photograph is that if you look in the background, there's a poster uh -huh. of an acrobat jumping, and it's perfectly symmetrical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's perfectly symmetrical to the man jumping. Yeah. Next to it is a sign that says Railovsky. And that's familiar to me because there's a bookstore in Barcelona that, that carries my stuff, and it's called Railovsky after this photograph. Oh, I see. Railovsky was nobody, but there was a Brailovsky who was a famous musician around the 1930s and may or may not have been in concert right. at the time that Cartier-Bresson took this picture. Mm -hmm. So you have this photograph, mm -hmm. and um, you have an element of movement in mm -hmm. the photograph yep. it is beautiful the movement is almost frozen although there's a little bit of a blur mm -hmm. and coming from semiotics you may be familiar with uh, Roland Barthes and his concept mm -hmm. of punctum right in, in my understanding by that Barthes means uh, punctum as the secret heart of the image mm -hmm. why does it move you why does it affect you yeah and in this case we may or may not agree on the punctum, but for me, it's the heel of the foot that is about to touch. Oh, I see. It's just about to touch. Right. So the narrative of the story is, as I see it, a man is taking a running jump to try and clear the water. Is he gonna clear it? He's not gonna clear it. Right. <laughs> not that much we know. You can see the ripples in the water, by the way. Yep. And you can see the, the ripples of him having taken a running jump on the ladder. Right. The water is still echoing his motion of a second previous. Yes. And all the things that Cartier-Bresson is doing right here are uh, just mind-numbing. I mean, from the exposure, how he decides that he's going to make this guy a silhouette mm -hmm. instead of showing the, you know, the material that the jacket is made from. So it becomes um, universal in a way, right? So it could be anybody. It could be anybody. Mm -hmm. And it, it keeps all the beautiful grace in the image. If yeah. he exposed for the jacket, then he would blow out the sky and he would get very little tone in the water. Mm -hmm. These are all photographic decisions that may be too technical for your audience, yeah. but they're real in terms of being a photographer. And what is really fantastic here to me is, is the placement of the figure. If he had shot 
this when the man was still crossing the ladder, it would still be an interesting shot, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have the cleanness and the symmetry of this yeah. shot. Yeah. So I think all of these little details, all of these little elements that he's choreographing at the moment of clicking the shutter uh-huh. are what take us to the story. Yeah. No one element, but the entire assembly and construction of the image is what makes you feel like you're there. You, you feel bad for the guy who's um, right. not going to make it, right? Whose shoes are going to get wet, who's going to get splashed with mud. Yeah. Uh, you feel maybe wistful for that Paris uh, or for rainy days, if you like rainy days. Right. There's another aspect that I know that uh, I touched uh, on in one article I wrote about uh, narrative images, and I wonder if uh, it comes into play in your uh, photography, is the fact it's the time component. So when a viewer look at these photographs, you know, he could say this is an event that happened in the past, right? And in their mind, they want to try to build a story out of it. Okay, so this guy is uh, maybe, you know, woke up this morning and was uh, on his way to his uh, work and this is uh, the train station and he's about to miss the train. Mm-hmm. And there's another guy that's watching, maybe saying hey, farewell to a relative and uh, most chances he's going to get wet and not going to catch the train. So the conflict <laughs> here is really, you know, the, the flood. And I just invented this right now because it's, it, it, but you see how I played with the tense, you know, yeah. the past, it the present, the future. tower all the way. That. Yeah, exactly. Which, if I would see the, you know, the, the time, sort of, I could say even, yeah. Sort of justify your construction of it as a, as, a, as, a time, as a time-based narrative where the guy is late or he's running to catch, yep. you know, all of those things kind of mm-hmm. uh, click with that tower, um, yep. that clock tower in the background. Absolutely. The yeah. rush of it. Another reason why you might be feeling the rush, Shlomi, it's simply perceptual. Mm-hmm. Because the guy is so close to the edge of the frame, it accelerates his motion right. perceptually. Mm-hmm. If he was dead in the middle, it would be a lot more static than mm-hmm. it is when he's about to disappear from the frame. That's true. Yep. And, and that's not explained by photographic mechanisms. That's explained by psychological and perceptual mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And I think Cartier-Bresson was so in tune with those kinds of aesthetic tensions in the frame. Right. There's an, another thing that uh, maybe you, could, you can touch on is the role of emotions in the narrative images. So in this case, you, we have a very gray color template that kind of set a, a very kind of, a, you know, not too happy uh, state of mind, right? <laughs> so what can you say about the role of emotion and color uh, template choices? When we go to the next image for that question. All right. Okay, let me just... Uh... So I just need to find it. Okay. So we're talking to, about this one, right? Mm, I don't see it yet. 
Oh, you don't see it? Okay, let's see. This one? Exactly. Okay. So this is a photograph by James Nachtway, uh -huh. who is one of the leading photojournalists, war photographers, really, um, in the world. Um, has covered just about every conflict in every continent. I mean, the guy is so experienced. Right. Um, but this photograph, in terms of emotion, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a wonderful one to discuss. I mean, you see a room that used to be a bedroom not so long ago, uh -huh. um, but has now become an extension of the front lines of war. Yeah. And what is happening in this photograph is extremely disturbing. It's neighbors firing on neighbors. Mm. And so, you know, your eye takes in the deep grays and really inky blacks mm -hmm. of this photograph. The window is coming from the, from, the light is coming from the window, but the window is almost completely barricaded by, yeah. um, by the shutters, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you see the wallpaper is peeling and you see this man taking aim and you see the bed looking almost as if somebody could have risen from it. And perhaps this man sleeps there when he's not fighting. Yep. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But with Nahue, what I really love about his photographs is that they're very cinematic mm -hmm. and they always make me sort of do a, a double movement, a movement back in a movement forward. Mm. So back in the sense that I might think of a young couple carefully choosing the wallpaper for their bedroom, right. perhaps having a smaller room next door for their kid, um, of them returning um, after a day of work and relaxing in that bedroom, um, building a family, they were building a life together. Yep. And then it comes to this and you see this scene. And I think the question that always comes up for me when I look at Nachtwey's work is, was this moment preventable? Mm. You know, did we really need to arrive at this moment? Or was right. there something we could have done as a society to keep us from getting there? And then the aftermath, of course. Yeah. And, and I think the next image is a really great photograph to discuss in terms of the aftermath. Mm. This one, I, by the way, I think it, it to me, it, it nicely situated in the conflict component of a story because you could see that there's a threat right. coming out from the window and everything is kind of suggesting that something bad is about to happen. <laughs> that something bad is about to happen yep. or is gonna keep happening, right? Who knows? Yeah. How many bad things already happened at this point? Exactly. Uh, the next image Let me is, open uh, it up in mm -hmm. just a second. It's also about James Nachtwey. Yeah. Do we see it? It's also by James Nachtwey. Yeah. And um, this photograph, I think, again, the same criteria apply to it. You can imagine this boy running for a loaf of fresh bread and bring it back to his mother. Mm-hmm or playing on the street with his buddies. Uh, but instead we get the ruined city yep. spreading limitlessly behind him. It's completely destroyed. 
-hmm. And there's a kind of violence that Nachtwey is doing uh, as well as a photographer by cropping half of this kid's face off. Yep. Um, it's, it's very dramatic though. And it places us right inside his eyes and right, right inside his head. Um, so that, you know, we really stop and look and we look at the way his hair has been shorn mm -hmm. from the head and no kid wants that. I mean, yeah, that's either, either you were in a hospital or you were in a camp. Yeah. That's in a prison, in a hospital, you were confined to an institution and it was done by somebody with shears mm -hmm. and in two seconds, right? Just completely ripped off your head. Yeah. Where is this boy going as he exits the frame? What kind of future is ahead of him? You mm -hmm. know, all of these questions are um, summoned by the photograph, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And Just looking that, at his yeah. eyes, his yeah. eyes are very telling, you know, almost like the, the horror he went through. And they are very, you know, descriptive in a sense that, you know, on one way you can look at it from the past tense, you know, the, his horrible events that he had to go through, but at the same time, what's ahead to head for, for him, because he's kind of, as you said, you know, in a second he's going to get disappeared from the frame and mm -hmm. encounter some, some other, <laughs> you know, challenge most likely. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it's a very powerful, stark, image mm -hmm. and however you feel about that particular conflict mm -hmm. you know it's impossible not to feel for the boy absolutely yeah he's still alone on earth right and again the dark tonalities of the picture reinforce that the composition and the placement mm -hmm. of the head half already half outside the frame really invisible to us yeah is is key and intentional a side question, you know, we talked about emotions, you know, when you uh, decide on a, to, to compose a photograph, photograph, do, do you come to, to the project with a, some sense of a single emotion you want to target and you kind of, you know, choreograph the, the frame this way, or it's more kind of something that, uh, organically happens afterwards? I let it happen organically. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could be more forceful and yeah. you could set the stage in a way for a photograph. Um, but I, for the most part, I like to be guided by light, mm -hmm. available light, mm -hmm. as opposed to creating my own. And um, I like, the camera to tell its own story. I mean, I prepare for documentary projects, seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I research and do my, uh, my part to be informed. Yep. But when I start photographing, I, I try to forget what I read and just be guided by the moment mm -hmm. and by the photographs as they begin to materialize. I see. Um, so that, you know, I, I want it to be the camera guiding me because otherwise I'm just repeating my opinions and I'm a photographer. That's not what my truth should be. It shouldn't be um, 
just repeating that I already have mentally about things. I should be exploring things visually and coming up with the most powerful images I can. Right. Maybe after you showed us uh, some great example, maybe uh, we can uh, switch to some example from your uh, photography. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If you want to go to um, the first image from my book, Yonqueros, we can do that. And Yonqueros is a book that I did um, about the junkyards and uh, scrap metal businesses in Willits Point, New York. And um, I shot for a year in the junkyards. You might have to zoom out of that image. Oh, it's loading. Okay. In a place called Willits Point, Queens. Do we see it? We see it. Okay, great. Uh, the book was published in 2013. And the place really exists no more. The city of New York had been fighting with the mechanics for um, almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. The city never liked this particular place um, and always wanted to get rid of Willis Point, make it go away. Yeah. Finally, Mayor Bloomberg was able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and when I started photographing in Willits Point, the mechanics didn't know this was going to happen. But for somebody who was not from there, who had just arrived, the signs were on the wall that, that, this, that days were numbered, basically, for Willits Point. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the first image in the book. And, you know, in terms of what I mentioned before, how I use uh, fictional devices to tell a story, mm -hmm. Um, there's a device from literature that is very important here, and it's the idea of uh, premonition. Mm -hmm. and I'll get to that in a moment. What you see all the way in the background is um, City Field Stadium, where the Mets play baseball. That's the reason why ultimately the, the junkyards had to go away, because the city invested almost a billion dollars in renovating the old Shea Stadium into City Field, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's an incredible sports palace. And of course, they didn't want junkyards across the street. They wanted to make it New York's next great neighborhood, you know, and to have all kinds of businesses and stimulate the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so when you look all the way back, that's the reason why Willis Point has to disappear. I took this photograph um, early in the morning in the main street of Willits Point, Willits Point Avenue, which the locals call the road to nowhere. Mm. Um, when I first started going to Willits Point, I felt like I had opened my eyes and traveled back in time and arrived at a landscape from the Great Depression, 1930s. I thought of people like Walker Evans and Dorothea Lang to... Mm guide me stylistically, let's say, or to at least have a reference in terms of style. Um, and to think about the Great Depression on the one hand and the Great Recession on the other, which is the historic moment that we were living, 2010 was what the high point of the Great Recession. Yeah. So I, was, I had all of these kinds of questions in my mind. And as a photographer, you could say to yourself, well, you're crazy. Why are you thinking of the 1930s? But you have to trust your intuition. And there's a Pepsi-Cola sign that is seen backwards uh, from right to left. Yep. 
and the reason for that is that it's meant for the paying audience at the stadium, not for the mechanics, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at the font of that sign, it's not a 21st century Pepsi Cola. Yeah, it's, it's an old late 1940s or early 1950s Pepsi Cola. Yeah. And that's a small miracle of sorts <laughs> in that it, that it does take me back in time so that I'm not completely crazy. You know, I'm not completely making this up. There's a sign in the landscape. There's a reflection as well, a doubling of this sign, mm -hmm. um, which heightens the sense of illusion, perhaps, or daydream. Um, I would say even a time machine effect, you know, it's actually because you have this old sign there, it's, it has this magical power to kind of uh, transport you back to the 40s, maybe. Because it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it dominates the frame, right? It's yep. probably the first thing that people see is that Pepsi Cola sign. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I, I like the reflection. Like <laughs> point is, it's not like New York. This is like a lunar landscape. You would never expect mm -hmm. New York to look like this. Um, and so the whole combination of this makes the image, but there's one other detail that is really the part where foreshadowing comes in. Mm -hmm. If you look carefully, all the businesses are already closed. Yeah. There's not a single business that is open. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time they were open, but I came there earlier than the businesses open. Mm. So I had a very strong impression when I was working in Willits Point that I was not living in the present. It was weird. It was almost like I was in the future looking back that what was happening was already gone. I felt it so strongly that this place would be gone soon mm -hmm. that everything felt like a ghost in a way. Um, and that's an example of me mm -hmm. uh, building a storyline the way a writer would. Yeah. Not that I came to Willis Point and when I was taking this picture, yeah. I was thinking all of this. I, I took different pictures of this, this particular avenue throughout the year that I spent. But when it came time to edit the work mm -hmm. and create a book out of it, that's when I started looking for the photographs that really activated the story. Right. And I think it, it, to what you pointed out earlier is that sometimes it's not about really staging a, a specific uh, photo in your mind and just go and, and, and create it. It's more about how you interact in the environment and kind of uh, paying attention to the fine details that could really trigger the story that you didn't have before, but it just evolved as you were interacting in the environment. And mm -hmm. as you, in this example, you saw the Pepsi, the old Pepsi logo, and that kind of uh, triggered the idea that this is maybe a, an element from the past and, and that's kind of created the, the whole notion of the, you know, the depression area. So it's all, everything is, I think it's, are, the elements are really triggering associations that build the story this way, as opposed right. to kind of really sitting down uh, on a table and, and writing a novel where you kind of 
you don't have any triggers other than your thoughts. But when you take a photograph, you are exposed to the visible objects that can trigger mm -hmm. elements much easier, I think. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> I mean, slowly every page reveals mm -hmm. another aspect of life in Willett's Point. Yeah. The lives of the mechanics, the way the landscape looks, how it changes with the seasons. Right. Their clients, you know, the families or individuals that come to get their car fixed, mm -hmm. the owners of the shops, the mechanics who work there, um, the looming shadow of the city mm -hmm. that is going to wipe it out of existence you know all of these things are part of the story um, and you create meaning by establishing pattern by establishing a kind of thematic repetition yeah uh, and of course by flipping the pages so the next and final image that we can discuss yeah let me just um, is a portrait Mm -hmm. I'm just looking it up. It's not coming up. Let me open it up. It's the. I'm not seeing it. It's a portrait um, of one of the mechanics in a in a tank top shirt. Okay. Let me. Okay. Now it should work. Yeah, here we go. You found it. Okay. This is the second image in the book. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my favorite people in Willits Point. It's, it's, a, it's a portrait that on one hand is an obsession with chrome. Everything is metallic, yep. including the gourd that he's drinking from and the <laughs> mask. Right. Holding. So this is a man who lives in the scrapyard, you know, this is yep. his element, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of my favorite portraits, partly because this guy um, was very serious. And this mm -hmm. is the only time that I saw him smile the whole entire year that I was in Willits Point. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of Mona Lisa moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so one time he broke into a smile and you can see it's a very subtle smile. Very. Mm -hmm. um, I had a friend, from Guatemala come and visit New York when I had an exhibition of, mm -hmm. of this work. And he saw this portrait and he stood by this portrait for a long time. So finally, I was very curious and I, I approached him and I said, why are you so fascinated by this image? And he said, and this is a guy who worked um, excavating the bodies of people who were murdered during the, the years of the guerrilla insurrection and were mm -hmm. buried, you know, unmarked graves. I mean, he's seen the worst things that humanity has to offer, just to give you a little aside, a little detail on this guy. Mm -hmm. He says, why is he smiling? His life is shit. Right. What does this guy have to smile about? Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it took me a moment, it took me a beat to answer him because I had to return to the day I took the picture mm -hmm. mentally. And um, I remember that it was a brutal summer. I mean, it gets so hot. And mm -hmm. these places don't have air conditioning. And they work with heavy equipment all the time that generates heat as well. Um, but it was not hot yet. It was early in the morning. Mm. And what the guy is holding is a, is a gourd 
of mate, which is a South American bitter tea. And it's quite a ritual, you know, with that flask, you have boiling water and you pour a little bit of boiling water and you stir it ever so slowly and then you take a sip. Mm-hmm. It's like gunpowder. It's like liquid gunpowder. It just <laughs> blasts you awake in the morning. Mm. But this is the best moment in his day, you know? It's like a happy because moment. When the, when the clients come in, mm-hmm. he's going to start getting greasier and sweatier and filthier as the day goes on. But he's clean. And he's powerful. You know, his body is very powerful. And I think there's a certain satisfaction in that when you're built that way and you can do your job well, no matter how uh, menial in a way the task might be, no matter that you're a mechanic, you're a good mechanic and you're strong. Mm -hmm. There's some satisfaction there. And I think that's why he's smiling. Yeah, I I actually see here the fact that uh, you know he's really. You said earlier the color is really all gray and metal, and he's almost uh, part of his surroundings of all the metals and the <laughs> scrapes around him. It becomes one, but uh, and this kind of project an idea of of really despair and really low of the lowest, but at this tremendous bottom. You could see through his eyes and a slight smile. There's, you know, a single ray of hope and optimism, and, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of shine through this, you know, almost like a sun from his face, you know, yes. which is a, a, a fantastic contrast to the whole environment he's plugged in, and and I think this contrast is really makes this it's almost like uh, if you think about you know the italian neuralism you know that was shot uh, in a very tough neighborhood in italy and to kind of bring up uh, social aspirations so it almost has that neuralistic uh, flair to it <laughs> thank you shlomi i really like that reading uh, <laughs> and I, I agree the the light reflected on his face from the outside Mm-hmm. is hopeful and is optimistic. Yep. Um, so, I mean, this is not a portrait that I, I didn't, A, I didn't want to flatter him. Mm-hmm. B, I didn't want to show him for, uh, for being a hopeful, optimistic guy. Mm-hmm. This is just the moment. And sure. it's just me rising early in the morning and traveling an hour and a half from my place in Brooklyn mm-hmm. out to the far end of Queens. Yep to get there just as the businesses are starting to open. And it's how this guy woke up that morning Mm -hmm. and how he was feeling. And the fact that his boss hadn't shown up yet because his boss was Mm. a bit of a jerk. And he was always (laughs) kicking me out. Tommy, what can you be? Do not distract me. Do not take their time. You know, you are not welcome here. That was the message every single time. So many things, uh, combined to make this portrait, it's an exchange. Like I said, he doesn't smile. Mm-hmm. And it's not the first time I photographed him. And that's the other part of this, mm. is that as a documentary photographer, you continue to go back and back and back. And that's one of our greatest strengths. We are not photojournalists who parachute yep. somewhere and then airlift out. Mm-hmm. No, it's 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 long form. Absolutely. So you make relationships with people over time, and particularly people who might be guarded 
mm -hmm. or have checkered backgrounds, uh, they grow to trust you eventually, but not right away. And yeah. so I think this is the third time I photographed this guy and I finally felt, okay, this is the real photograph. This is the real portrait that I always wanted from this guy. No, it's, I think it's really fantastic. It really tells a lot of, you know, tidbits about his life and his situation right now. But, but despite everything, I think the keyword here is the optimizing and the optimism and, and really great hope that he has for the day ahead. And mm -hmm. this is really powerful. Yeah. So I want to kind of wrap up uh, and basically uh, kind of summarize. So we really went through a lot of examples and I really want to thank you for helping us uh, uh, read them correctly and also sharing uh, amazing uh, tips about how to create uh, a great story in a single photo, which is something that a lot of people are striving with. Uh, how can people uh, reach out uh, to you if they have uh, more questions? Um, they can go to my website. It's my name, jaimepermut.net. Okay. Or if you, if you plug my name in Google, the first hit is going to be my website. So. Okay easy enough to find me. You can follow me on Instagram if you'd like. I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, so social media is an easy way to get to me um, and directly from my website. And everybody's welcome to reach out um, who would like to hear from me or has a, a question that we didn't quite cover or do justice to uh, in, the, in the format of a, of a videocast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jaime. And for all of you watching or listening to this uh, session, I uh, look forward to seeing you uh, in our next episode. And until next time, keep your visual stories coming. Thank you. Thank you, Shlomi. Goodbye. Thanks. Visual Storytelling Today is recorded in Miami, Florida. The show is published exclusively by Visual Storytelling Institute. Learn more at visualstorytell.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on the iTunes Store. Until next time, don't let your big story wait to be told.